0: Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orinjsopher. Thanks so much. Kid, we had pets growing up. And uh, cats and uh, at some point we got a golden retriever. So is uh a lot of joy in playing with her. We had one cat named Mindy, who was a black, all black cat with yellow eyes. She was a stray. And uh, this one day, Mindy was outside and there was um, a little bit of water dripping from a faucet. And she was sitting there, mesmerized, watching each drop fall down. And she was sitting there and she had her little paw. And when, the, when a drop would fall, she would catch it with her paw and then look in her paw <laughs> to try to see the drop of water. And it kept disappearing. And she'd watch, wait for the next one, and then try to catch it and look. <clears throat> So I'd like to talk a little bit tonight about how we're all a little bit like Mindy. (laughs) Trying to do that and then somehow surprised when there's nothing in our hand. (laughs) So I want to talk about um, an aspect of the path that's really at the heart of all of these teachings which we have all been speaking of in various ways over the last many weeks. Um, But I'd like to devote this evening to looking at this one particular um, shift that's at the heart of the practice, and that's the shift of renunciation. So I want to talk a little bit about what what it is and what it isn't. its place in the teachings, the value of renunciation, uh, the process of cultivating it, and, uh, and some practical things that we can uh, explore both here and, and uh, in our lives. So maybe to start by acknowledging what, what this word isn't, renunciation. Oftentimes, culturally, our associations with this word are that it means depriving ourselves of what's pleasant or enjoyable or losing what we love. And um, the worldly mind, uh, that's the only way it can conceive of letting go, of seeking fulfillment in pleasure, is as deprivation. But that's not really what it is, as I hope you'll see. Renunciation doesn't mean asceticism or denying the body or self-mortification, as the Buddha pointed out in his famous first teaching, the turning the wheel of the truth. Uh, It doesn't mean passivity or indifference, like I renounce the world, none of it matters. Um, It doesn't mean being self-righteous, somehow being above it all. I've, I've renounced, becoming identified with renunciation. It doesn't mean being stingy, like I'm letting go of material things, so then we're we're um, cheap with others or stingy with ourselves. Renunciation is on the inside. It's a quality of our relationship to the world and experience. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, uh, "Though one may be well dressed, if one is poised, calm, controlled, and established in the way." having set aside violence towards all beings, this one truly is a holy person, a renunciate. It's not about the clothes that we wear, the length of our hair. It's about what's in our heart. We live in a culture in a society that... um, whose core message is the opposite of renunciation. So the, the pressure of the consumer culture and the advertising industry, the, the messages that we are bombarded with implicitly and explicitly um, all tell a certain story about where happiness and fulfillment come from. All of our senses continually being assaulted with images saying, you know, want me, buy me, have me, this will make you happy. And this gets us caught in, in a cycle of always looking outwards. And the mind kind of starts spinning in that. Uh, Joseph Goldstein is a very nice summary of the, the kind of ethos of our culture. He says it can all be summed up in two words to have. We have things, we have possessions, we have a job, we have a relationship. We have experiences. So this this movement to possess things, to have things. And this is not just today. This is from from the Pali Canon, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Before my awakening, this is the Buddha, before my awakening when I was still unenlightened, the thought arose in me, renunciation is good, seclusion is good, but my heart didn't leap up at the thought of renunciation. It didn't grow confident, steadfast or firm, seeing it as peace. So even the Buddha before his awakening recognized that that thought didn't actually bring this sense of possibility. So it's said that the Buddha's teachings go against the stream, and this this is a very deep current not only externally in society, but in our own hearts and minds. This, this movement to try to have things, this expectation that it's by getting something that we'll be happy or fulfilled. The Buddha's teachings are pointing to the fact that there's something beyond this impulse in the mind to always crave, to try to hold on to an experience or to prop up some identity. teacher in the Thai forest tradition, Ajahn Sucitto, says, the rarest human experience isn't bliss, it's contentment. So you know that um, saying that certain languages have many words for something, like apparently in certain um, Inuit languages in the far north, there are all these different words for snow. We only have one word for maybe two: snow and sleet, hail. Maybe if you know two or three here. So in the Pali Canon, there are many, many words for renunciation. All of these different flavors of letting go: nekama, which is the main word that's translated as renunciation; chago, which means letting go. And um, I won't go through all of them, <laughs> but it, they show up in many different places. So we talk about the seven factors of awakening. But what's not often taught is that each of those is intended to be developed based upon viveka, viraga, niroda, vosaga, which is a progression of renunciation. Viveka, which means stepping back, non-involvement. Viraga, dispassion, not getting caught up in sense desire. Niroda, ceasing, seeing the ending of things. And vosaga, relinquishment, giving up. So this word "nīkāma," which is the word that's usually translated as renunciation, um, literally means like turning away from sense desire. So not turning towards sense desire. Another translation is non-desire. Non-desire. Or we could say this word nekamma, if we look at it from a different perspective, rather than renunciation, what if it were simplicity? Or non-addiction? It changes the flavor a little bit, doesn't it? So this quality of renunciation and its various kind of facets of letting go is really at the heart of the teachings. The Four Noble Truths, the, the realization of Nibbana, is through letting go, the abandonment of craving. We've talked a lot about the Noble Eightfold Path. So, uh, I think it was, was it last week, I talked about right view, this first aspect of the development of wisdom. The next aspect of developing wisdom is what's known as right thought or right aim, sometimes translated as right intention or attitude. And this is kind of three core orientations to experience. Non-hatred or kindness, non-harming or compassion, and renunciation, letting go. So the whole path can be seen from one perspective as a gradual cultivation of this ability to let go, to renounce. Like even meditation itself is a kind of letting go of what we usually do with the mind, right? Instead of thinking, planning, looking, trying to control things, meditation is a a renunciation of our habits of mind. Samadhi depends on letting go, the cultivation of stability of mind. The word in the suttas is usually translated as seclusion. That's the word viveka, which means stepping back, not, not getting involved with things, this putting down, putting down, putting down. That's a le- it's a letting go, renunciation. So Dhamma practice is this, at, at the center is this fundamental shift or reorientation in the mind from the movement to get or have something to, to putting things down a poem from Ryokan a a Japanese wandering monk and poet from I think 17th century thereabouts Buddha is your mind and the great way leads nowhere don't search for anything but this if you point your cart north When you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? He's talking about this fundamental reorientation from seeking something, this movement outwards, to letting go, a movement inwards. So we tend to bring our worldly expectations and assumptions into practice in the Zen tradition, they talk a lot about not practicing with a gaining idea. So this path isn't about what we get. It's about what we let go of. And beginning to understand the benefits of that, what's revealed in the letting go. So why is renunciation goes against this current of gain, of accumulation, against the powerful assumption that that happiness comes from having more, from storing up experiences. That assumption actually increases our insecurity. It feeds the sense that I'm not enough because I need something else to be complete. So until we start to really question that assumption that what we seek is something outside of us in the future that we don't have, that we need to get, until we question that assumption, we can't actually realize the truth of the teachings. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? So these, this path is, is, is saying that it's not the yearning for happiness or peace or a sense of fulfillment that's the problem. It's the unquestioned assumptions about how that will come about. So the goal of this path, the, the fruit, is liberation through non-clinging. The release of the heart through non-grasping. There's a question last night that we didn't answer, what, you know, what's the unconditioned? What's Nibbana? One of the definitions in the, in the text, as the Buddha says very simply, Nibbana is the end of greed, hatred and delusion. It's freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. The letting go. That's what we let go of. We let go of that which causes suffering. So the purpose of renunciation, the value of it, the purpose is happiness, is freedom. So... From the perspective of the worldly mind that assumes happiness comes from getting something and having something and becoming something, renunciation is deprivation. But from the other side, from the perspective of the contemplative, relinquishment is about fulfillment. It's about recognizing enough. It's the absence of craving of wanting something else. So the Buddha really urges us to inquire deeply, to look and see what's beyond sense pleasure. What's truly satisfying in terms of a human lifespan? 70 years, 80 years, 90 years. What's really worthwhile? And when it comes time to die, what will we value? Having done. When it comes time to die, what can we take with us? Can we take our things? Can we take our memories or our experiences? We have to let go of all of it. So rather than being nihilistic, the path is actually an affirmation, saying that there is something of deeper value here, of deeper meaning, more sustaining but that it doesn't come about in the way we expect. So exploring our relationship with sense pleasures is the first level, the kind of the first domain of renunciation, relinquishment, letting go. And each of us here on this retreat, you have given up a lot already just in being here. And if you think back to the years of your practice, there was probably a time when you never would have dreamed you would come on a month-long retreat. (laughs) And this is very important. Renunciation ripens at its own pace. It's not something we can rush or force. When the heart is ready, it lets go. It says, yeah, I can put down my life for a month, my relationships, my work. I can let that go, I can put it aside for something else more important. So examining sense pleasures is, is, um, this isn't a denial or a condemnation of the happiness or pleasure of the senses. The Buddha said that sense pleasure, there is a certain kind of gratification that comes from the senses and that that's to be known and understood. But there's also a danger, there's a limitation and there's a release, there's something deeper. So renunciation is about a careful examination of our relationship with sense pleasures. And really starting to look closely where does contentment and peace come from? Does it come from getting what we want? How long does that last? Does it come from having more pleasant experiences? Think of the most pleasant experiences you've had. Where are they now? Poof, All right? Where does it go? There's Mindy catching the water and it's gone. So, in this practice, we're examining and trying to understand the nature of sense pleasure. When we look closely at it, we see that it follows a very predictable pattern. There's the anticipation. It's gonna be good. (laughs) Ah, that cake looks good. Then there's the hit of pleasure when we get it. Ah, and something floods in the system. There's this kind of like spreading of warmth and this uplifting, this kind of sweet rush. And then it fades. And then what? (laughs) Maybe I'll go take a shower. Then we want another one. And that's it. Anticipation, a hit, and then it fades, and then I want another. The Buddha talked about sense desire as a hindrance, craving for sense pleasure. He likened it to being in debt, or to like a bucket with a hole in it. You can pour as much in as you want it's never full. There's a lot of very, very potent right. analogies in the suttas for sense pleasure. He says it's like um, um, birds of prey fighting over a piece of flesh and this one bird is holding to it with these other birds attacking it and it can't let go. Or he said it's like climbing a tree to, um, to get a fruit but someone's sawing the tree down underneath you. <laughs> So in Asia, they have a very simple uh, trap for catching monkeys. They put a sweet in a box, a wooden box with a little hole in it, and the hole is just big enough for the monkey's hand to to reach into. And it, it grabs the sweet, but it's not big enough to get its hand out. And once the monkeys grasp that sweet. It will stay there even as a human ap- approaches to catch it, screaming, not able to let go. So there's a a reevaluation that needs to happen, right? What's actually worthwhile? and questioning this, this fundamental perception that getting pleasure, having pleasure, will bring some kind of lasting happiness, that it will fulfill us, that it will fill some hole inside. So this is what dukkha means. Sharda talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago. It means that the nature of things in this realm is that they're unsatisfied. They're incomplete. They just they don't have the capacity to provide lasting satisfaction because they change. That this world is inherently incomplete, it's never fulfilled, it just keeps going on, that's its nature. So renunciation is just starting to understand that. It's based on starting to see more clearly the nature of things. Suzuki Roshi said, true renunciation is not giving up things but in accepting that they go away. It's not about the object. It's not about whether or not you have a cookie. (laughs) It's about the relationship. This is another analogy in the text. The Buddha says there are two oxen, a brown oxen and a white oxen. And they're joined at the neck by a yoke. And he says, is the white ox a fetter to the brown ox? Is the brown ox a fetter to the white ox? This kind of has very sort of powerful tones for our current world today, given the race relations in this country, even though it wasn't at all kind of what he was talking to. So the, the monks say, you know, neither. It's, it's the fetter that joins them. That's, that's the it's the yoke that joins them, that's the fetter. And so these two oxen represent the sense base and the sense object. So it's neither the eye nor the, nor the sight. It's neither the ear nor the sound, neither the tongue nor the taste, neither the body nor the sensation. That's the issue. It's what's joining them. It's that relationship of clinging and attachment. That's the fetter. So renunciation is not about getting rid of anything. It's about understanding and letting go of that fetter, of that, that glue whereby we latch on to things. A very famous story about Ajahn Chah, the Thai forest master, um, holding up a crystal goblet or vase that someone had given him to his students the vase is here. <laughs> it was, he says, This is my favorite vase. He said, You see this vase? He says, To me, this vase is already broken. That's true renunciation. Didn't mean he wouldn't use it or take care of it, just means that there's the understanding of its nature, that things go away. One of the monastics I spent time with, Ajahn Viridamo, says, renunciation is giving up the tendency to always try to maximize pleasure. So this is the first layer, the first level of renunciation, is exploring our relationship to sense pleasures. How do we do this? So going back to that monkey in the trap. It's the grasping, it's the relationship to the sense pleasure that's important. So, in order to turn off a muscle that's been chronically tight, first we actually need to feel it. We have to become aware that we're holding on, we actually have to experience the grasping. So the attention has to turn inwards and and start to examine and understand the experience of craving, of clinging and grasping itself. So instead of focusing on the objects themselves, on the allure of gratification, we have to start to have a glimpse into the process to witness the futility of grasping, of chasing after things, of trying to manipulate or control experience. And you can't be on retreat for this long and not start to have a sense of the futility of trying to control experience, right? Does it work? (laughs) But to do that, to start to actually examine the experience of craving, we need a reference point from which to observe it. We, We need something that stands outside of it. If we're lost in the senses, if we're constantly chasing after objects, we can't understand more deeply what's happening because the mind is always just swinging from one thing to the next. That's what's called monkey mind, grasping after one thing and the next, swinging from one thing to the next. So there needs to be some movement of stepping stepping away. This is viveka, non-involvement. Literally, it means not one with. Ake is one in Pali, and v, the prefix, means not. So to not be one with something, it's that stepping back. So what's happening here? So one of the other analogies in the text that's used, particularly with the senses, is like, it's like a firm mindfulness of the body. It's like a firm post in the ground and then the senses are all tied to that post. So then we start to feel their pull, right? When we're just moving around in our life, when there's no reference point, we don't notice what's happening. I'm a little bit hungry, I want something to eat, right? So the the, the sense door of the tongue arises and and then we're in the bag of chocolate chip cookies and then we wanna listen to something and then there's music on. And then we want stimulation so now we're looking at the phone and it's like whatever's pulling us, the mind goes in that direction. So without a reference point, something to gauge against, we don't see the pull of the senses. So this is, this is the value of mindfulness of the body or sense restraint, starting to actually step back from the senses. We have to develop someplace else to rest, another reference point, and then we can start to evaluate the process of craving. So this is, this is part of the process of cultivation, of meditation, of developing samadhi, developing wholesome mind states like generosity and kindness. We start to have someplace else to rest the attention against which to measure the movement of craving and start to experience and examine it. So as we start to look into the experience of craving and examine it, this reflex to constantly have something or hold something to fill us up, we we begin to we begin to discern that it's it's all the same. Craving is always about something that we don't have. It's not in the object. Craving is in the sense of not having. Right? Like if you can't eat gluten then it's then it's then it's the bread that you want, or the cookies. If you can't have tea, then it would be the tea that you want. Right? If you can't go walking over there, then it's the walking that you want. If you can't go sit, then it's the sitting that you want. Right? Some, of, some of some of us here in the retreat have body, body pain. It's difficult to sit. Then we want to sit. And the people who are sitting see the people lying down. I want to lie down. <laughs> the craving is always about something that we don't have. So starting to observe this from the perspective of the Four Noble Truths of Suffering, from the perspective of renunciation, what we're letting go of is the very sense of wanting something. It's the lack, it's the sense of not having that we're giving up. This is what the Buddha meant by enlightenment is giving up this very sense of not having something, of seeking something. He said it's the complete end of that impulse. The end of lack, the end of absence. So what we learn through this is renunciation is the ability to let go. sometimes referred to as the reality of non-grasping, that the that the heart actually has this potential. There's, a, there's almost like a muscle inside that can do that, that can put things down. And we're practicing and strengthening that act of releasing itself. And I think we know this deep inside. There's a knowing that that satisfaction doesn't come from having anything. That less is more. And renunciation is it's a, it's a, a realization of that fulfillment. We can't hold on to freedom. Freedom itself is the end of that reflex to hold on. My body's taught me a lot about renunciation. i had uh, some digestive issues since I was 25, so about 15, 17 years. And uh, so it meant that I eating, eating sweets would lead to a lot of pain and unpleasant experiences. And so getting to observe the process of craving process of how the eye sees something and then there's the perception of pleasure and then the desire for that the mind moves out and how repression doesn't work how you know renunciation doesn't mean repression so when i would repress the desire when i would push it away it only, you know, th- that could only last so long and then there would be, you know, not having one piece of cake but like five pieces of cake, right? <laughs> I remember this one retreat where somebody made this like amazing chocolate cake. It was like the platonic ideal of chocolate cake. <laughs> and I was living as a monastic at this, at this time so there was a lot of renunciation and I couldn't eat a lot of foods that I wanted to. And so then one morning, waking up and nobody else was up. <laughs> and there was still some chocolate cake left in the refrigerator. I don't remember how many pieces I ate. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't just chocolate cake, it had coffee in it. And like thick chocolate icing. I felt so sick. (laughs) My whole body was like shaking from the caffeine of the chocolate and the coffee. And then I had to deal with the consequences in my body, you know. So the Buddha uses an analogy saying, you won't let go of something until you have something else better. It's like if you're, if you're drowning at sea and all you've got is a log and someone says, let go, you're not going to let go, right? We need something else. We need like a raft or a boat or something else to come along. And it's like, okay, hey, now I'll let go of this mangy little log. I got something better. So this is the, the, the process in the texts and the process of meditation is by depending on this, abandon that. We don't just let go. We need something else to rely on before we can let go. We have to cultivate someplace else to rest. You can't let go of sense pleasures without the pleasure of meditation or the pleasure of wholesome action and generosity. It's natural for the human being to to feed on sense pleasures if there's nothing else to fulfill us. So we need other forms of healthy pleasure in order to start to step back from and examine our relationship with sense pleasures. So the whole process is a voluntary one. It's not something that gets imposed. Like, now I need to renounce. Orin gave a talk on renunciation. I better get on the eight precepts of last week. There's room to experiment and explore. Again, Ajahn Chah said, he said that um, being on this path is knowing about letting go, but being unable to do so about 90% of the time. (laughs) I love that. Because it's so real and so humbling. It's like we can see, we're like that monkey with its fist stuck, it's like we can see, like, I'm stuck here, I'm stuck here, but we can't let go. That letting go happens on its own, through patient, observing, staying with, seeing the suffering of it until the conditions are right. Uh, Meningerji always used to say, when you know that fire is hot, you won't touch it. We only have to touch fire once to know that it's hot, something learns. So this is what we're doing, we're learning, we're exposing the mind to the burn, what it feels like to hold on, so that it can learn, don't touch that, put it down. There's a difference between the ideal, the images we can create in our mind of renunciation and the lived experience of it. The heart knows when it's ready to put something down. Coming on retreat for a month. You didn't force yourself to do that. Something was ready inside. My my folks got divorced when I was in my early 20s and sold the house I grew up in. And so when, when that whole process happened, you know, there was kind of a purging of, of belongings, of items, because there wasn't any place to keep them anymore. And I had been practicing for a few years by that time already, but I didn't really understand what renunciation or letting go meant. I thought it was getting rid of things. And so I, I still have this very visceral memory of sitting in the garage and going through boxes of, of like toys, my childhood toys, you know? I didn't, didn't need them anymore. But there was so much pain about my parents' separation inside that there was this like push inside to get rid of stuff because it represented the, the pain of that relationship ending. And I remember sitting on the kind of cement floor of the garage and going through the boxes and just this very like strange sensory experience of, of um, touching all of these objects in this very heightened awareness but not fully understanding what was happening. It wasn't until many years later that I realized that I hadn't actually let go of any of that stuff. I had pushed them away. Remember, renunciation is not about the object. It's not about having or not having something. It's about the relationship to what's happening. The two oxen and the yoke that joins them. The sense door and the object. Is there that grasping and attachment? And it's a natural process. It's something that develops over time. So to just look and see in your own life, where is there an inner turning away? A putting down, a sense of, I've had enough of this. I don't need any more of this. And maybe you've even experienced that on this retreat. Certain patterns of the mind, where at a certain point something says, enough. I'm not going to do that anymore. not going to feed that one anymore. You don't have to force. You don't have to force it. When the heart's ready, it puts it down. If it, if it's, if the heart's not ready, it's going to be repression or suppression or aversion. Well, you know? Did you have to renounce your teddy bear <laughs> or your blankie? Pawan told the story of her blankie last night in the Q and A. You know. It's not like, I need to renounce my teddy bear. At a certain point, it's like, thank you, you've served your purpose, I'm moving on. (laughs) That's the process in this path. So renunciation matures over time. So as we explore the sense realm and craving, that begins to establish a certain kind of clarity in the mind, a certain stability and skill around letting go. And then the process of renunciation can deepen. It matures beyond the realm of sense pleasures into uh, the deeper layers of the mind. Letting go of our obsession with status. Letting go of our fixation on our opinions or our views. Even to who or what we assume ourselves to be. So this is the deeper layer of renunciation. A kind of inner letting go. The the teaching in the text is these, uh, these four floods, these four kind of tides of craving that sweep us away, the flood of sense-desire, the flood of becoming, wanting to be something or become something, the flood of views, needing to have a position to know where we stand to be right, and the flood of ignorance. So we start to witness, once, once the mind gets a handle on this process of letting go, of putting things down, we start to witness the the habits in our heart and mind that are so deeply embedded. Not just the habit of wanting sense pleasures, but the habit of wanting to become someone or have something, these kind of root programs at the core of consciousness. The sense of, if I could only get a little more concentrated I could only get this, if I could only do it. If that would only go away, then I'd be okay. If I just try a little bit harder, then I'll be better. Renunciation means turning the mind around. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, How will you ever arrive? Turning the mind around to see that movement. If only I could, oh, something's moving in the mind. What is that? Even giving up who we feel ourselves to be. The familiar sense of not good enough, something wrong with me a very powerful moment of this and um my my time as a as an anagarika when i was when i was in white i was living at the monastery in canada this is maybe 5 years ago 6 years ago so i was in my mid 30s and all my friends are you know getting jobs and getting married and having kids and I'm wearing white with a shaved head, like in the middle of nowhere in Canada, <laughs> and um, not getting into jhana, not having insight, <laughs> cooking for the monks, like wasting my life. <laughs> These are the thoughts that are going through my head, and so I had just gotten off the phone with a good good buddy of mine from college who's the executive director of this hip nonprofit in Oakland that's serving incarcerated youth and just got together with this wonderful woman who I also happen to know. And so you get off the phone and it's just like failure, you know, like I am a failure. Like I left my worldly life and I'm failing at this monastic thing. And I remember like walking down to the stream and just standing there and, oh, this is the perception of failure. This is what failure feels like. That's all. And then there's freedom. Because the mind isn't identified with it. It's not picking it up anymore. Failure feels small, tight, unpleasant this layer of shame oh that's it giving up renouncing the that sense of i am the one who's failed it's just an experience it's just a perception Philip Moffat, who's a teacher here at Spirit Rock, he has a really lovely way of talking about this level of renunciation, of shifting our relationship to these patterns and programs in the mind. He has three, three renunciations. I renounce being the star of my own movie. <laughs> I renounce measuring the success of my life by how many of my desires are met. I renounce my attachment to being right. These are deeper layers of letting go. So how do we do this? We've talked a lot about um, investigating craving, witnessing that energy, becoming aware of the process. There are many other practices in, in our tradition that that create the conditions for renunciation to mature. Dana, the practice of generosity, is a letting go. right? To give, there needs to be a letting go. Sila, following the precepts, is an act of renunciation. We give up the impulses to cause harm. Oh, that's nice. I like that one. I think I'll take that. Oh, no, I'll put that one down. I'm not going to follow that. A question last night about uh, causing harm with sexual energy. It's a renunciation. A letting go of, I have to have that experience with that person. Sitting itself is a renunciation. It's a profound renunciation. Particularly in our daily life. To put down the flood of sensory stimulation, to disengage from the pressure of the demands on our time and say, I'm just going to sit here and do nothing. That's renunciation. It's giving up. We can structure into our life Various practices that support renunciation. So doing a digital fast for half a day or a day. Not looking at screens. Taking um, the observing, excuse me, observing the uposada, the the new moon and the full moon observance, the lunar observance once every two weeks, once every fortnight. You know, take a day of practice, like a, a Sabbath day. Donald does a Sabbath day, half a day, one day a week. He's done it for many years. I'm still working up to it. <laughs> <laughs> or just choose to let go of a particular thing. right? Like in, uh, is its is Lent, is that the Catholic tradition, Lent? Yeah. So, you know, Lent is a practice of renunciation, giving something up for a period of time, fasting for a day. Many religious traditions have a, Ritual fasts. So giving up any activity for a certain period of time. Say, I'm just not going to do that. I'm, no, I'm not going to eat sugar. I'm not going to drink caffeine. Not because there's something wrong with it, but to strengthen this capacity to let go, to experience the freedom of non-grasping. What's it like to not be defined by my desires? To have the capacity to just say, oh, I'm going to let that one go by. Letting go of a mental habit or a verbal habit to say, for one week, I'm not going to complain. Anytime something comes up they don't like, just not going to complain. Not going to engage that mental habit or the verbal habit. Or not talking about a third, third parties. Nothing wrong with talking about someone else if it's coming from a good place, but what's it like to put that down? exploring our relationship with material objects. You know, if you've got something in your home that you're really attached to, take it off the shelf, put it in a box for a month. See if you miss it. Or, you know, some gadget that we're really attached to, our cell phone, or... Ten years ago, you didn't have it, did you live without it? or some new thing that you want to get. Right? It seems like I have to have it and it's going to be so useful and it's going to be so great whether it's, you know, the latest watch or device or something. Well, just go into the future, imagine, okay, I get that thing, and then imagine like a year or two later. How much how much pleasure does it give you? 5 years when it's starting to wear out and it's all scratched up. So there's this this practice called the patikula, which means turning around. It's like you look and see where the mind is getting hooked on something and you change the perception. So if the mind is getting hooked on the pleasure of an object, you, you see its impermanence, how it's going to eventually fall apart. If a mind, you know, with, sense, with, um, se- with sensual lust, you know, the mind painting a picture of a, of a body as being attractive, And start to look for the unattractive parts of the body. Again, not because there's anything inherently wrong with sensuality or sexuality, but to see what's it like to have a different relationship with that movement outwards to try to have something. Or noticing the effect on the mind of trying to always accumulate things. What's the effect on the mind of always always trying to get something? What qualities are reinforced? There are various contemplations or reflections that we can do. So, contemplating what's actually needed in our life. In the uh, in the Buddhist tradition, we talk about the four requisites. Food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. That's what we need to survive as human beings. Food, clothing, shelter, medicine. On the material plane. On the heart plane, we need a lot more. Love, connection, meaning. Physical plane, food, shelter, clothing, medicine. So just contemplate. What do I actually need versus what I want? So, uh you know, huge impacts on our planet of this kind of hunger for more sense pleasures, and more experiences. Contemplating impermanence, contemplating death, recognizing that where will all these experiences be? We haven't talked this retreat about the five daily recollections, contemplating uh, sickness, aging, death, Contemplating one of them, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Right? Contemplate that the next time you want something. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Again, it's not, that it's not about not engaging with life, but what's the relationship? So the question can come up, what about the joy and beauty in life? What about justice? What about equity? What about compassion? Am I supposed to renounce those? I was, um, when I was at the monastery in Canada, we, we went canoeing one day. It was one of those like peak weather days. There's no bugs, warm, sunny out on the lake, and uh, Ontario, you know, pine forest, just swimming and canoeing. It's just the sense, just the sensory experience was so satisfying, you know, just perfectly right. And I, and there was a visiting teacher from Thailand, uh, one of the Kruba Ajans, one of the, uh, masters. And I asked him, I said, you know, well, what about that? What about the joy that comes in life? And, uh, he said, it's only suffering that we let go of. Which is actually a line from the texts. And the Buddha said, it's only suffering that arises and suffering that ceases. It's, only this, it's the dukkha that we let go of, the sense of lack, of not enough. And as it matures, as it matures, it matures into what's known as relinquishment, vos saga. Complete letting go. I want to end with a a quote from Ajahn Buddhadasa about the, the culmination of renunciation. To understand Dhamma sufficiently is the first step, but understanding is not the end. We now see that the mind, we now see that as the mind begins to let go, to loosen up its attachments, these attachments dissolve away. We experience this until the point where attachment is extinguished. Once attachment is quenched, the final step is to experience that the mind is free. Everything is free. The Pali texts use the phrase, throwing back, which is a translation of Vosaga or relinquishment. The Buddha said that at the end We give everything back. This means that we have been thieves all of our lives by appropriating the things of nature as I and mine. We have been stupid and have suffered for it. Now we have become wise and are able to give things up. At this last step of practice, we realize, oh, it isn't mine. It belongs to nature. We throw everything back to nature and never steal anything again. Thank you for your kind attention. Just take what's useful and leave the rest aside. Mm. So we have some time for walking practice and then uh, we'll meet again at nine for the last sitting of the day.